Our text this morning is Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses. As Luke continues to describe for us the early ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we get our first glimpse at the calling of the disciples. The twelve disciples who will, in days to come, become the twelve apostles. If you would now please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that You would teach us from Your Word. That You would teach us not just about other people. Not just about things that have happened. But, O oh Lord, that You would teach us why You have recorded them in Your Word for all eternity. The effect that it would have and should have upon our lives. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that You would take us to this Word and change us. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We have reached a time in the world in which it is not an easy thing anymore to be a follower of Jesus. We see society treating people differently because they claim the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We see society giving easier treatment to others who do not say that they are Christians or believe the Bible. 
And I think it is interesting that we are aghast at this and we wonder what we will possibly do when the history of the world is that this is the history of the church. Throughout almost all of history, in almost every land, the church has been a beacon, a light in a dark world. A world that is not only dark for itself, but that is dark toward the church. And so this morning we see a glimpse from Luke about what it means to be a real disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a real Christian, the costs and the requirements that are imposed upon us. This morning from Luke chapter 5, I would like us to see four things that describe a true disciple. First, a true, true disciple listens to Jesus. He longs to hear the words of his Savior. Second, a true disciple trusts Jesus. Trusts Jesus with all that they are. Thirdly, a true disciple sees Jesus. Really sees him. And then fourthly, a true disciple is changed by Jesus. What does it mean then to be a a true disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? The first thing that we see from our text is that a true disciple listens to Jesus. We see this instantly at the beginning of this chapter. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. The crowd has come and they are longing to hear Jesus. Now, remember the context for where this chapter begins. If your eyes can scroll up just a bit to the end of chapter 4, you will remember that the last time we were together, we, we saw Jesus performing miracle after miracle after miracle. He was literally up all night healing. And His reputation spread throughout the land. And yet, He said, I have to stop doing this. I have something more important than curing cancer. There is something more important than making people walk. There is something more important than keeping an individual person from death. I have to preach the Word. That's our context. Jesus tells you that the most important thing about His ministry is the Word of God. He stopped doing what He was doing to preach And so Luke then breaks in in chapter 5 to explain to us, to you and to me, what is this importance of the Word? What does it mean? Not just for Jesus to say it, but for us to understand it and to experience it. This is important today because inside the church, not outside, but inside the church, Far too many want other things than the Word of God. They want a show. They want compassion. They want deeds. They want friendships. All in place of the Word. Now, there's nothing wrong with friendships. There's nothing wrong with compassion. There's nothing wrong with deeds. But they are not primary. 
The primary purpose of the church of the living God is to bring God's word into our midst so that we might be changed and we might understand the perspective of all of these other things. This is the perspective Luke wants us to see. And so he he gives us kind of a very colorful illustration of this. Imagine in your mind's eye that Jesus is out by the lake. And he begins preaching. And he's not standing at a pulpit as I am, preaching and everyone's sitting comfortably, wondering if the air conditioning is going to kick back on again. Will it make me cold? Oh, I'm hot. The seat's rather comfortable. Stop nudging me. No, he's standing by the sea and the crowd is there and they're trying to hear him. And they're pushing forward. They're they're hemming him in. Imagine that in our midst. If right now 40 more people came in and they made it hard for you to hear and horror of horrors, you got up and moved closer one row. And you think you're safe and then 40 more people come in and you say, I can't hear him. And so you move up one row and the people that are in the front say, I've got to come right up here. They're they're hemming him in. I can imagine it was hard for Jesus to breathe. He says, give me some elbow room. And the people at the back are saying, what did he say? What did he quote? And Jesus knows this. And he understands how important this is. The people are thronging. They want to be with him. Why is this? Because they know that no man spoke like this man. With power. With authority. With mercy, grace, and truth. This one who spoke on this day speaks now to you today through his word. Do you long to hear him? Are you pressing in? Are you leaning over? There is an eagerness in the crowd. They are straining to be near Him. They're leaning forward to catch every word. You know what this is like. Have you ever been with someone who tells a captivating story? You're sitting at the kitchen table and you start leaning back in your chair. And as they tell the story and it gets more interesting, you sit up. And then before you know it, you're leaning forward on your hands. You don't even realize you've done it because there's something so captivating about it. There's something so interesting about it. There's something so changing about it. That's what they're doing. But there's also an urgency about it. This Greek word for pressing in has not only the connotation of leaning forward, it is a connotation of urgency, of needing help, of pressing someone for help. There is an eagerness. There is an urgency. Did you wake up this morning with an eagerness and an urgency to hear God's Word? You've already heard an entire chapter of it read to you from Ruth. Or did you wake up and say, Oh, I lost an hour's sleep. Well, you know, we've got to go to church. I've got to fill the snack baskets. Oh, I've got to teach Sunday school. You see, there's an eagerness in the Word of God that as it catches us, it changes us, it renews us, it gives us energy and purpose for our lives. And that's what's happening here. And Jesus knows this, He understands it, He knows they want to hear, and so He does the only thing that He can do, humanly speaking, to be heard. He looks over at these two boats, and He says, I have an idea. If I go out a little bit out into the lake, 
they'll be able to hear me. I'll be apart from the press of the crowd. And anyone who is a boatsman or a fisherman knows what it's like to be out on a lake, right? You go out with your kids and they're a little bit more boisterous than they should be and it sounds like cannons are going off. Right? Because the sound just reflects off of the water. And Jesus knows this. And he begins to go out just a bit of a way. And he continues to preach and teach. He uses the lake as his audio system. Now, notice that Jesus does this and his teaching for them, not for him. He wants the word to be spread wide. He doesn't say, listen, y'all in the back, come back tomorrow. I have to, I want to have some one-on-one time, some close, some small time with people. So you could come back tomorrow. Now what does he say? I'll go back. More people can hear me. Hopefully more people will come. There is an immediate application for us. We have been talking a lot recently about our move to two services. And we're wondering about when we will come and how that will be convenient or inconvenient. And the thought would be, well, why bother to do this? Do we think too much of ourselves that we need to express ourselves? No, the idea here is we want God's word to be heard by as many people as possible. We want to fling the doors open. We want to have as many opportunities for people to be changed by God's word so that they can change your neighborhoods, your schools, and your workplaces. Jesus wants to be heard. But there is something interesting here that we may miss by just looking at the big picture. Jesus knows the crowd needs to hear, but he also knows there is someone else who needs to hear. Jesus is the original multitasker. I don't know if you've noticed this. Whenever Jesus does something, there is more than meets the eye to it. There is multiple reasons why Jesus does things. His economy of action is remarkable, as when he heals someone to show compassion, but also to teach others and also to rebuke others at the same time. And so he knows not only does everyone in the crowd need to hear, he knows Peter needs to hear. And he says, Peter, come sit next to me in the boat. Let's go out just a ways. You can't help but hear. We can almost imagine Jesus saying to himself, I know you've been busy working with the nets. I know you're tired. I know you weren't really paying attention when I was doing all of this. Come sit next to me and hear what I have to say. You see, Peter is in the boat, and we know that Peter knows Jesus. We saw this in the last chapter in verse 38. Peter has had Jesus in his house. Peter knows about Jesus. He knows of Jesus, but he has not made a full decision to follow Jesus. He's got his own life. He's got a job that keeps him busy. He's got family to take care of. He's got a mother-in-law that was really sick. But Jesus knows that Peter has problems. Jesus knows that Peter has questions. And he wants to get Peter's attention. This morning, Jesus knows you have problems. This morning, Jesus knows you have questions. And you may think it was sheer random chance that your alarm actually went off this morning and you made it here on the change of clock Sunday. But it is not. 
You are sitting where you are sitting by the eternal counsel and decree of God because God wants you to hear His Word from Luke in Luke chapter 5. Jesus knows you're to hear. A true disciple listens to Jesus. But a true disciple does more than listen. A true disciple also trusts Jesus. Because we might put it this way. Listening to Jesus is a necessary requirement, but it is not sufficient. It is not sufficient for us simply to sit back and hear what Jesus is saying. Because after all, Peter had heard Jesus before. But what was the effect? What was the change it had made on him? It was enough to hear for Peter. Now, we can understand that this is not enough. It's not enough simply to hear, but not act. We see this in our families all the time. It's when the wife says from the other room, Honey, would you get that for me? No response. Honey, would you get that for me? Oh, I heard you. I heard you, dear. Uh, no, you didn't. Because if you'd have heard... You'd have got up and got it. That's why I called again. Because you didn't really listen. You didn't really act. And you see, that's what's happening to Peter here. There's a struggle within his soul that he hears, but he needs to go beyond that. And so Jesus gives him a request. Let's take your boat out so I can use it for amplification. Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but I'm sure that there are many of you that think, oh, well, this is just kind of, you know, a simple request. Get in the boat, go out a couple feet, Jesus will preach, right? What's the big deal, Peter? Come on. This is a big deal. Peter's been up all night. Peter is tired. Peter doesn't want to go back out on the water. He's ready to call it a day. And get to sleep. This is something that requires a commitment on Peter's part. See, we look and we see this is easy. Peter won't do this. Let me judge Peter. When the reality of the situation is, we're not ready to obey Jesus either. We think Peter's job was simple. But mine is hard. Jesus tells me, to do something, to trust Him, to really commit to my marriage. But that's hard, Lord. You don't know how hard. I can't do that. Jesus calls us to obey our parents. And we say, you know, Lord, you don't know how unreasonable they are. That's really hard. I can't be responsible for doing that. Jesus calls us to work hard in our employment. And we say, Lord, you don't know who our boss is. You don't know how difficult my commute is. This is miserable and hard. Jesus calls us to commit to coming every seventh day to worship and adore Him. And we say, Lord, you don't know how busy our lives are. You see, just by simply categorizing the difficulty of God's commands, we excuse ourselves. Isn't it amazing that everything that Jesus wants others to do is easy and everything he wants us to do is impossibly hard? 
This is what Peter is facing. He can't just listen to Jesus. And so he gets up and he goes. And then Jesus makes an even harder request of him. Peter, um, let down your nets and let's fish some. Now again, we think, well, okay. Jesus wants him to do a little bit more, but that's not so hard. And some of us have in our minds fishing. Okay, Peter, fling the rod and reel a little bit. Sit and wait for a bite. I know the sun's hot. But that's not fishing here. You have to understand, Peter has been out all night. He has worked harder than any of us work. He has worked in manual labor without the aid of technology throughout the entirety of a night because that is the time in which you catch fish. And he has done it not with a rod and a reel, but with big, heavy, coiled ropes. And they have been dropped into the lake and pulled out. And do you know what happens when you put rope into a lake? It gets wet. Do you know what happens when a rope gets wet? It gets really heavy. Now, Peter has just laid all of this rope out, these nets, out on the seashore. Why? Because that's his drying machine. It's noon. It's the hottest time of the year. Now, I want you to imagine that the pastor walked up to you and said, you know, I just have a small favor to ask of you. Let's go grab a couple of hundred pounds of soaking wet rope in the hottest time of the Texas sun and dump it in the lake and see if we catch something. What do you think? This is a, this is a very difficult word. And I think it's intentionally difficult. We wonder why the fishing, Jesus. It's because Jesus comes to Peter with the hardest place that he can come. He challenges Peter not only with a hard task, but exactly at the area that Peter thinks he is most competent. Who is Jesus? He's a carpenter. What does he know about fishing? Peter's the expert. It's like me going down to the the basketball arena and calling over Dwight Howard and saying, Hey, Dwight, I think you would improve your dunking and hook shot by doing this. He's going to look at me like, Who are you? The short guy. They can't make a layup. Seriously? Now, I think rather than judging Peter, we should be appreciative for Peter because I think many of us, if not all of us, would have looked at Jesus if he'd have come to us in our area of expertise and come to us with an incredibly cockamamie plan and said, Jesus, I think the sun has gotten to you a little bit. Go sit in the shade. There's no way this is going to work. I'm tired. We fish at night for a reason, Jesus, because that's when the fish come up. In the daytime, they're all the way down at the bottom. Nobody fishes in the daytime, Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. But you see, Jesus is challenging Peter right at this point because it's not about the fish. It's not about the job. He wants all of Peter. And if he can get that area of Peter in which Peter is most self-reliant and show Peter that he is of no hope without Jesus then he's got him. Some of you are experiencing this now. Some of you take much, much better care of your health and bodies than I do. And yet the Lord has given you affliction. 
We wonder why. We eat right? We exercise? Why am I sick? Why do I have this pain? It's because Jesus is getting your attention. Some of you are experts at your work and you're experiencing difficulty and stress. And we wonder why. It's because Jesus is coming right at your area of expertise to get your attention, to tell you who's in charge. And so Jesus gives this request to Peter, and Peter obeys. Look with me at verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, took nothing. Now he starts with a term of respect. This word for master is a word used typically only by Luke. And it is a word of respect and authority. It is, it is not a master in the sense of a despot or someone who is, is tyrannical. It's someone, it's, if we were, um, if we were watching a late 19th century British conversation, it would be, good sir. It's a term of respect. But then Peter can't help getting in just a tiny dig. You know, we did work all night and we caught nothing. But notice where Peter turns. He doesn't say, you know what? I never thought of that. You know what? That plan is just crazy enough it might work. No, he says, I have no confidence at all that this is going to work. But at your word, I will do it. Do you see where Peter turns? It's not based on the likelihood of success. It's not based on the ease of the task. It is only based on the fact that it is Jesus' word. That's what should turn and change you. Not, I think I can do this. Not, I think my family can handle this. It is, Jesus has spoken. He knows what is best for me, and I will obey. That's what he does. Notice something else, too. That Jesus says to Peter, put down, put out into the deep. That's a singular command. Peter, you go out. And then he says, and all y'all let down the nets. So Peter, by making this decision, is carrying along not only himself, but his entire crew in obedience. Do you know what that's a picture of? Fatherhood. Fathers. When you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, when you obey, your kids get dragged along in the net. There is a synergy, if you will, to that. We saw that just a few weeks ago in the story of John Mark Whitman. I was enthralled to hear from him how, how there were times when he hated going to church and the only reason he went was because mom and dad dragged him. But there's an effect in there, an effect of cumulative obedience. And so then what happens is their trust in Jesus is rewarded beyond all of their expectations. This is typically how Jesus gets a hold of us. It would be one thing to go down and to catch some fish. It would be one thing to go down and to catch a small lot of fish, more than anyone has ever caught in the noontime. It would be another thing to catch the biggest catch that they had ever gotten. No, Jesus goes beyond that. There's so many fish in the net that the net starts to break and the boat starts to sink. Now, you have in your mind a picture of a little cartoon rowboat 
that's about as big as this pulpit with oars. These are not small boats. This is a boat about 30 feet by 10 feet. There are tons of fish, literally, in this net. So much so that they call over to the other boat, their partners, who just happen to be there. And just happen to be James and John. Gee, I wonder what Jesus had in mind there. And they come over and they experience it first time. And you can imagine, they're, they're sweating and they're hauling and thinking, oh, this is, this is the best that we have ever experienced. And I'm sure what's going through their mind is, I can now pay those bills off. Oh, this is wonderful. I can get this for my wife. And so they carry all of these fish back. Jesus blessing their trust more than they could even have imagined. Is that the Jesus that you know and trust? Or are you afraid of trusting Jesus this morning because you're not sure if He'll even meet basic needs? You see, when push comes to shove, if we're not sure about the claims of Jesus, if we're not sure that we want to claim Him as our own, if we're not sure we want to trust Him with our immortal soul, it is because we're not really sure He's going to come through. Now, I understand all this heaven and hell business, but I'm not sure I really need to commit. You know, I've got a pretty nice house, Jesus. I've got a pretty nice car. I don't want to mess things up. I don't want to get in a spot where I'm worse off than I was. But you see, the problem is we think small. Peter's thinking, well, maybe if we get a half dozen fish. When he should have been thinking, I wonder if we get a half dozen tons of fish. Jesus fulfills his promises beyond anything you can imagine or think of. The third thing that we see is that a true disciple not only listens to Jesus and trusts Jesus, but he also sees Jesus. He sees him as he really is. Peter does something else that we think is typical Peter. It's rash and doesn't make any sense. They get all these fish and he falls down before Jesus. And he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And we think, Peter, fish? Did you swear while you were pulling up the net? What's the sinfulness here that catching a lot of fish has pointed out. It's embarrassing. Can you imagine all of Peter's buddies around him? Now remember, these are not, how shall we say this, the kind of gentlemen that eat lunch sipping from a cup with a pinky up. These are fishermen. These are rough and tumble guys. And Peter falls down in the boat that... It's actually quite dangerous because we've already heard the boat's almost sinking. And Peter falls down before Jesus and he says, Depart from me, for I'm sinful. And he calls Jesus now something else. He calls him Lord. He's no longer the Master. Now he's the Lord. He's not just one who needs to be respected. He is one who is holy and sovereign. And Peter has seen who Jesus is. He has seen that Jesus has control over nature. And as we think about it, who has control over nature? God! You can imagine young people 
Peter remembers all of his Sunday school classes on the Exodus. He remembers all the little songs they chanted in Hebrew about the plagues and how God controlled the nature. He remembers the stories about Elijah and the rain and the wind and how God controlled all the elements. And now he's seeing it unfold right in front of him. And he is faced with the fact that this is not just some good teacher, not just someone I ought to listen to, not just someone who I could think about his ideas. This is someone who is God. And he sees Jesus for who he really is. Jesus is not here to be observed by you. There is a difference between observing something and seeing it. Being gripped by it. Being changed. A true disciple actually sees Jesus for who He is. And when we see Jesus for who He is, we then begin to see the real me. You see... It is a typical reaction in the Bible to see the holiness of God and to fall on your face. It's what Isaiah did in chapter 6. It's what John did later in Revelation chapter 1. Because we then begin to understand all of the excuses, all of the plans, all of the sham that we put up to keep other people at bay are of no use before God. He sees right through all of our pretenses. We know we're undone. And oftentimes we want to react the same way that Peter does. We're fearful of judgment and we say, Oh God, get away from us. Don't watch me, God. Get out of my house. Get out of my bedroom. Get out of my work. Don't look at me. Just leave me alone and maybe I can go under the radar. When in reality, what God wants us is not to go away from Him, but to draw ever closer to Him and to find forgiveness and grace for the sins that He already knows we have. This is why Jesus responds. Do not be afraid. Aren't those wonderful words in the Bible? He knows all of the problems that Peter has. He knows all of the concerns that Peter has and he doesn't begin by trying to tell them, oh, these aren't real. Oh, you need to be a man. Oh, you don't really understand. He doesn't start with an argument. He looks at him and he says, as we would to a child, don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm here. Don't be afraid. A true disciple listens to Jesus. Trusts Jesus. Sees Jesus. But finally, a true disciple is changed by Jesus. Do you see what happens here after this exchange? Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And everyone around him is astonished at what Jesus has done, including James and John. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, do not be afraid. For from now on, you will be catching men. There's this wonderful little phrase here. Don't be afraid, because now you're mine. And then, in a what we might call a Luke-ism, this phrase, from now on, comes out. 
It occurs elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, and everywhere it occurs, it is a marker of a new period of life, a change, a radical difference. Mary says it after it has been announced to her by the angel that she will give birth to the Messiah. She says, from now on, all men will call me blessed. Jesus says this to the woman at the well. He says, from now on, sin no more. You're changed. Peter, you are different now. You have a new purpose. You have a purpose that Jesus has given to you, and that purpose is to tell others what you have found. Now Peter will be out catching men. And even the word that is used, it is a coined word. It means to catch alive. Now, I know in some places there are fishermen who fish just for the joy of catching a big one and throwing it back in. But I have to tell you, in this day and age, no one would ever have done that because they could not go down to the supermarket and get fish. They would never have thrown a fish back in. You catch fish to kill them and eat them. That's what you do. And now Jesus has turned Peter's entire life around and said, you will be catching men alive. And again, we need to remember what fishing is like. He is not saying to Peter, you need to find yourself a cushy lawn chair and sit out with a cooler next to you with an ice-cold drink and a nice hat with maybe an umbrella and flick out a line and wait and wait. And then when you get a bite, reel it in. No. What he's saying is, Peter, you're going to take these heavy nets. And you're going to go out and you're going to sweat. And you're going to work hard. Sometimes you're not going to get anything. And you're going to throw that net out and God is going to determine what goes in that net. And you're going to work hard to pull it in. Brothers and sisters, that's what evangelism is like. It is not like sitting on the side flicking a line. It's about sweat and toil and inconvenience and people coming to you that you didn't want coming to you. You were looking for certain sort of people and God gives you another sort of people. But that's the purpose that Jesus has given to you today. He's changed you. And the last thing he says to him in verse 11 is also a challenge for us. When they had brought their boats to land, they left, what does it say? Some stuff, the stuff that was weighing them down. The secondhand stuff they didn't really want. No. Everything. They left everything. This is the crux of what it means to follow Jesus. Peter had listened to Jesus. He had thought about Jesus. He'd talked with his buddies about Jesus. But now he's following Jesus. And that means leaving everything behind. Could you imagine Peter and James and John saying, Sure, Jesus, we'll follow you. You go ahead and lead. And Jesus walked, and they walked and dragged the boat. And Jesus walked, and they dragged the net. Could you imagine that? As they come to a new town, here's Jesus, Peter, James, John, boat one, boat two, nets one through five. People would look at him and go, What on earth are you doing? That's the way you should treat your things, 
when they weigh you down in the mission of Jesus. If your car is a drag on you, you must get rid of it. If your home is a drag on you, you must get rid of it. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to sell their car and everybody needs to sell their house. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you need to look at your own life and find all of the things, whether they are material or whether they are habits, that drag you down and stop you from following Jesus. And you need to leave them at the lake with Peter's boat and net. Do you want to be changed by Jesus today? Then you must hear Jesus. Do you want to be changed by Jesus today? Then you must be challenged by Jesus. Do you want to be changed by Jesus? Then you must see who He really is. And you must follow Jesus. Let's pray.